Well, let me ask you this question. What were you doing a decade ago? Some of you are like, I was 13 years old. I know, okay? Some of you are like, you know, what were you doing? Were you, you know, were you in a completely different life stage? Probably. I mean, right, you only get so many decades. We get like eight or nine decades. So a decade ago is like kind of a long time ago. It was 2009. It was so long ago, the iPad didn't exist yet. Isn't that amazing? Okay? That's how far ago 10 years was. Um, some of you, you didn't have kids yet or your kids were still in the home. The, why am I bringing all this up? The, the reason I'm talking about what were you doing a decade ago, because today, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 15, it's been a decade since Abraham got the promise. Now, for us, we read it, we're like, well, wasn't it three pages ago? Well, yeah, in our Bible, it was three pages ago, <laughs> right? By the way, that's why when we read the books, we're like, uh, you know, oh, ye of little faith. It's like, well, it's been a decade. You know, you can think about what you were doing 10 years ago and, and how if, if not much has changed, you might have some questions. And that's what, by the way, happened with Abraham. Abraham and Sarai, guess what? They're no longer 75. That was pretty old already back then. Uh, but now they're 85. And, and it seems like, well, not much has changed. In fact, well, you could argue, and maybe at least at some level, that things have gotten worse. Uh, the nephew that, you know, maybe, maybe he thought at one point, maybe this will be my heir, I don't know. Well, the nephew kind of got crazy. We kind of saw that story and went off, and so that didn't turn out too great. And he's already sinned and failed and suffered, and that didn't turn out too great, although, you know, he came around and repented. And, well, you know, he had a big battle with these kings, and, well, that went well, but who knows what the next battle will happen. And so he's in this season of waiting. And, and, and I want you to understand what we're going to look at today is we're going to see what, you, what do you do when you wait? Because waiting is a willingness to wait an ability to wait is an evidence of faith. That's what we're, it's kind of, a, it's part of what it means to have faith. And let's just, can we be honest, as Americans, we hate to wait. Like the goal in our life is to wait as little as possible. This is why like mobile orders are like really popular now, right? Um, so we can just go in and grab our Starbucks drink and not even make eye contact with the barista, right? Uh, or, or you can think about like, so my wife the other day, she says, will you pick up the groceries? And you know, being a great husband, I said, of course, you know, and all that. Um, but but um, she said, well, now I do it on, on the Walmart app. And basically, I just kind of, in my kitchen, I just, and I just put everything in, and then they tell me when it's ready. And then she said the coolest thing. She says, here, here's the app. She said, just when you leave the house, just hit the button, and it will track your location. And when you pull up, they'll already be outside, because they know you're coming. They'll just keep, put the groceries in, your, in the back of your car. I was like, I live in the future. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's really I mean, I, I, Walmart doesn't pay me anything to say that, but that, that is amazing. It really is. Well, you know, you can think about, okay, so, so Amazon. Right? I mean, it's interesting because these things, by the way, these things change us, right? These cultural things change us. And we don't even often realize it. Like, like well, Amazon says, okay, you can basically have anything within two days. It's like, well, that sounds great. Except sometimes, have you ever thought, like, two days? It's like, come on, man. Right? It's like I heard the story one time of a guy. He was, he was on a flight to London from, from New York to London, and they got to London, and he said, the guy next to him said, man, that, was, that took a long time. He's like, we're in London. <laughs> We made it to London in seven hours. It used to take our ancestors three months. <laughs> like, you know, we don't have to wait for anything. You, you order a book on, on, on Amazon, and, and, and after you order the book, you know when it pops up. Want to read right now? Buy a Kindle. It's like, yeah, I don't want to wait two days. You know, that's what we do. We've traded in our slow cookers for Instapots. Gotcha. I mean, right? Everything in our life is about speed. And so here, here we go. Here's what we see is Abraham has to wait. And what we're going to see in chapter 15 is um, how to wait well, if that's such a thing. How to how wait and, and ask the right questions. He's going to ask questions and wrestle with God and talk to God about it and pray through it and reread God's promises. I mean, that's basically what Abraham does in Genesis chapter 15. Like, praise the Lord. Genesis chapter 16 is how to not wait well. And that's the, the temptation. And Abraham's part of that, too. So we're going to kind of see him in both. But that's more Sarai and Hagar. 
and, and, and how they're tempted to take God's will and do it their way. And so we're going to kind of see both of these. We're going to do a flyover because these two chapters are connected, Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 16. So open up with me to Genesis 15, and we'll just start reading in the first verse. Uh, here's what it says, Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, we talked about that, that's a lot of things, it's 10 years, it's ups and downs, it's your life, my life, it's suffering, failure, success, good relationships, difficult relationships. It says this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It's like, okay, well, what do you need while you wait? You need a vision of God, you need a vision from God. You need a vision of God, who is he? And this is what he's gonna do. God often shows up and it's like, he doesn't give them all the time like a lot of more information. Like this is a common theme in scriptures. Like uh, I'm not gonna give you more details. I'm not gonna answer all your questions, partly because it would probably completely overwhelm you. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a bigger view of me. So this is what he does. He shows up. He's like, he's going to say this in a second. I'm your shield. I'm your reward. I took you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Don't forget how great and glorious I am. And it's like, that's exactly what you need. I heard a story one time about a couple and their daughters. I can't get into this. This wasn't in this church at all, but this was somewhere else. But their daughters, something terrible had happened to their daughters. And and they were kind of going through therapy for it and all this. And they were, and the pastor asked them, well, what, what has sustained you? And they said, the only thing that's sustained us through this time has been, a, has been the Isaiah 6 vision of God, holy, 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 seated on a throne. It's like, that's a very deep answer. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, my life is no better. And it's actually going to probably be a lot worse. And this is a chronic thing. And the kids are going to have difficulty with it. And it's going to affect our whole life. And there's not easy solutions. And so what I need is a bigger view of God. It's like, well, praise the Lord. And then the other thing he's going to give them is a vision of what God wants to do through them. And that's another thing that will sustain you. It's like, well, get ready because this is what I want to do through you. Right? It's like, well, what, what, and I've seen this. I've seen that be a big, a big transition in a person's life is not only God wants to have a relationship with me. That's, that's the gospel. That's what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we can have a relationship with God through Christ. But, but once you realize that, and don't ever grow out of that, but once you realize that, the second thing you need to realize is, and yeah, and God would like to do something in me and through me. God would like to reach my neighbor. Or God would like to reach my classmate or my coworker or my friend or my family member, and he'd like to do it through me. And so he gives them this big vision, and then look what he says, continuing in verse 1. He says this, fear not. And it's like, well, praise the Lord. That's exactly what I want God to say to me, right? When God shows up, you're like, he's like, if he says fear not, you're like, oh, thank God. Because <laughs> who knows what you might do to me? Who knows? You're, you're a massive God. He, comes, he shows, he says, fear not. Which, by the way, I've told you this, I think, before. It's the number one command in Scripture. Do not fear, fear not, shows up something like 360 or 370 times. It says, fear not, Abram. And then he says this, I'm your shield and your reward is very great. So part of what happens when we wait, I think, and what we see here is, is that we start to get filled with all types of fears, right? Like, I mean, just, I'll show you a goofy example. Like, have you ever met somebody at a restaurant and they, you said, we're going to meet, you know, here and it's going to be at noon and we're going to meet at the tavern and it'll be at noon and whatever. And, and then you get there and they're not there. And you, so you're waiting for them. What do you start thinking? I'm at the wrong restaurant. <laughs> right? You're starting to fill with all these doubts. I'm at the wrong restaurant. It's the wrong day. You know, did I say this? And then you send the, like the casual text, hey, I'm here. J- just checking. You know, right? Because as soon as you have to wait, you start to worry. Like, am I in the right place? I, so, so take that to the extreme in life. It's like you're waiting and then you, you have all these worries, right? Well, what's my life? Because there's so much about the future, by the way, that you have no, you know, you're finite. I'm finite. There's so, much, there's so much that you don't know, and it's like, well, there's all, and then if you think about Abraham, it's like, well, he's got questions, are there going to be more wars? Well, maybe. He won the last one, will he win the next one? I don't know. Well, how will the next conflict go in his family? Like, we know the whole story. It's like, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but he's got all these worries. So God shows up, he says, fear not, which by the way, in the Bible, God says basically, don't fear anything except fear me. 
which is another way to say fear the right things in life. Like fear, you're going to fear something, right? So what you need to do is you need to fear God more than you fear anything else. And you actually need to get the fear in your life behind you so it pushes you forward. That's actually the best people that you know, they're afraid of the right things. You know, it's like what John Wesley said. John Wesley said something like, uh, he was a great Methodist preacher evangelist. He said something like, um, give me a hundred men who fear nothing but God and hate nothing but sin and we'll win the world for Christ. And and his whole thing is get, get the fear of God behind you and then move forward into the world. And this is what they do. And, and he says, and I will be your shield. And that, that's, that's the whole idea of protection. With a shield, the, the way that you stay protected from a shield is you stay behind the shield. See, what God does is he says, here, I'm going to give you a shield that you need to stay behind. That would be obey my law, do the things, you know, don't be foolish, don't be rebellious, repent of your sin quickly, right? Here we often talk about God gives us freedom within offense, right? And, that, and that's, by the way, that's a very interesting concept because what they found out is, and I may have told you this before, but when it comes to playgrounds, if they put a playground and they don't put a fence around it, the kids stay really close to the playground. But if you put a fence around a playground, the kids will actually go out a little farther. There's actually more freedom with the fence. People like to be told, no, this is how far you can go and no farther. And so what God says in your life is, I'm going to give you a shield. You can go this far and no farther. And so what often happens in our life, and, and this, is, you know, this is what's so hurtful, is we end up disobeying God, running out from the shield. Then we get hurt, and I'm like, I know I got hurt because I left the shield. I got into a relationship. I got into a habit. I started looking at something. I started going some places. I started indulging in some things, and I left behind the shield. So he says, I will be your reward, and I will protect you. And then Abraham, Abraham has some questions. And maybe this is kind of maybe the main message tonight is that it's, it's okay to ask questions honestly, right? Not to accuse God. Not to have a constant questioning heart toward God, like, is he good and all that, but to be able to honestly ask God questions is part of what it means to have authentic faith. So here's what he says. Um, But Abraham said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? So he's wrestling. God, it's been 10 years. Like, let's be honest. What will you give me? For I continue childless, still have no kid. You told me something about, like, nations. I got nothing. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And then he says this, and Abraham said, behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. So what I want to talk about just for a little bit here, because this is a helpful concept that we see in the life of Abraham, is the difference between doubt and unbelief. Those are two separate things, right? Uh, Let me talk, so here's here's the clearest place in scripture where you see this, the difference between Job and Job's wife. So if you know the story of Job and Job's wife, what, what happens with Job? He's suffering. What's he doing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling with God about it. I'm talking to my Christian friends about it. I'm trying to repent of all known sin about it. I'm trying to be honest about it. I'm asking God a lot of questions about it. But, but God says throughout the book, he's blameless. Well, what is that? I'm doubting. I'm struggling. But I'm being faithful. What does Job's wife say? Curse God and die. Well, that, that would be unbelief. Unbelief is, let me st- talk about unbelief for a second. Unbelief is God got it wrong. God's wrong. Um, it's, it's a constant disposition toward God. It's always looking for reasons to doubt. It's a hard-heartedness toward what God has said. That's unbelief, and that in the Bible is called a sin. Doubt, now this is what's so interesting about doubt. Doubt, you only doubt the things you believe. Like actually, if you've never doubted your Christian faith, I don't think you really believe it. Because all of us are going to have, like, I, like this is how to me, I, there would be several times where, I've told you these stories before, I won't go into too much detail, but I'd be at Duke University, I was doing ministry for four years, and I would have these students, and they would come up to me, and they were smarter than me, and they were better educated than me, and every time I, and every once in a while I'd have a conversation with them, and they would push on things with me, and push on belief systems and everything, and I would be leaving, I would literally be physically shaking sometimes, and I'd be asking the question, I was in full-time ministry, 
I, I was on the campus full time, and I would be walking away going, what if this isn't true? And then, you, and then if you really think about that, then you have this feeling. Like, I wait, hold my, if you're really a Christian, doesn't matter that I'm in full-time ministry. I'm just saying for any of us. Like, if you're really a Christian, then you should, have something, you should feel something like this. Wait, my whole life is about this. Like, my, like my whole life, like, my, like how I'm deciding to get married and who I'm going to marry, like how I'm looking at my money and like how I'm, how I'm thinking about sex, how I'm thinking about marriage, how I'm thinking about raising my kids, like what I'm thinking about, like how I spend my weekends, like where does my free time go? Like, what is going to happen when I die? Like, all, everything in my life is about this. So you ask those questions, so, so you have these doubts. Like, I, for some goofy reason, when I first became a Christian, I started to doubt, to, you know, I, I, fairly early on, I thought, did the Jews get it right? Is the Messiah still, I just had, I just had all of these, and it, so for early on in my life, I would have doubts. So doubt is not the absence of faith, doubt is an element of faith. Now, you don't need to pursue your doubts forever and live in doubt, and that's not healthy at all. But to realize, okay, there's doubts, I can take them to God. And here's another encouraging thing about doubt. I didn't say this in any of the other services, just kidding right now. But, but you realize, you know, most of the things that you're struggling and having doubting with, if you're genuinely pursuing the Lord, um, most Christians over time have struggled with those. And you can read their struggle, you can read the answers they've found. I mean, that's one of the encouraging. It's like, well, you're not the first person to ask that question, thank God. You're not the first person to wrestle with that topic. You're not the first person to struggle with suffering. You're not the first person to ask questions about illness and injury. It's like, there's a lot of people, like, like actually one of the interesting things, um, even in the Bible itself, Matthew chapter 11, is probably the most interesting passage, in my opinion, on doubt in the Bible. Because you have John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist. If you know anything about the Bible, it's like, John the Baptist, Jesus says, best guy ever who's lived. And he lives like a very simple life, preaches the gospel, baptizes Jesus. It's like, nothing bad in the Bible is basically ever said about him. One of the few guys, nothing bad said about him. And then in Matthew chapter 11, he's in jail and he's going to get his head cut off and he knows it. And he sends some messengers to Jesus. And the messengers come to you. You can't believe, when you read this, this is why, by the way, this is why you believe the Bible, because you read these things, you go, I can't believe it's in the Bible. John the Baptist goes, sends messengers and they say to Jesus, um, are you the Messiah or should I expect somebody else? That's what he says. It's like, well, wait a second, didn't you just preach this for years in the wilderness to the toughest people under the most difficult circumstances? Yeah, but you go to jail and have your head cut off. It's like, you'd be asking some questions too. I would be too. And what does Jesus do? Well, the same thing we're going to see here. He points him back to the word of God. He points him back to the promises of God. So let's, let's see what happens here. So verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. As we doubt, we need to go back to God's word. What has God said? Thank God we have thousands of years of the written down word of God 66 different books, Genesis to Revelation. By the way, you have books like the Psalms. So the Psalms are people's experience living in a fallen, broken world as Christians. That's what the Psalms are. It's been said that every emotion you will ever feel is expressed in the Psalms. And so you, you can see people as they wrestle with God, as they, re, as they say, soul, hope in God. That's, it's all in here. So behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. So I'm going to repeat what I told you before, but I'm going to say it again. What God does with doubt is he doesn't um, condemn it, but he does challenge it. It's not something to be pursued and delight in and say, oh, isn't this awesome? But it is something God says, I'm not afraid of it. I'm going to deal with it. So let me just tell you what I told you. I'm going to give you a little bit more information. This is another thing God will often do. He will expand and enhance the promises he made in the past. He will clarify them. So here's what he says. Uh, Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. Some commentators say one of the things you need to do when you doubt God is you need to get outside. You need, to, you need to look at the stars. You need to look at the mountains. You need to look at the ocean. You need to go, okay, nobody times nothing doesn't equal everything. 
I don't have enough faith to believe that. So, so there is a God. I've got to get outside. I've got to look at this. I've got to, I've got to realize, part of what I've got to realize is I'm a really small person with a really small mind living in a very small world, and I need to get outside of myself, and I need to look up at the sky. So he takes him out there. He says, he brought him outside, and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall be your offspring. And then verse 6 is the key verse. It says, and Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is what makes Christianity unique. What makes Christianity unique is that every other religion, every other religion, every other religion is about making promises to God and saying that you're going to keep them. I'm going to do the five pillars, I promise. I'm going to be a good person, I promise. I'm not going to look at whatever the things you tell God you're not going to do. I promise that I'm going to do this. I promise that I'm going to change. I promise that I'm going to be a better dad. I promise that the second half of my life will be better. It's all about, that's religion. I will make promises to God. God hopefully will, in, in, in response to that, love me and, and accept me. Whereas what makes Christianity unique is it's the only religion where God says, I'm going to make promises that I'm going to do, I'm going to do good to you in spite of you. And that's what this whole thing's about. It's like, well, he's doubting. And, and basically, God makes all these promises. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring an heir. I'm going to save you. I'm going to save the world through an heir that I'm going to bring you. And it says, it says amazingly, Abraham believed God. Now, that doesn't mean that we, when we read belief, like a lot of these words, we, like, uh, we, bring, we bring like our you know, 21st century super shallow meaning to it. It's like, oh, he believed God. Oh, he mentally assented to that. He agreed with God in his mind. It's like, well, that times a lot more. You know? What he did was, he, belief means to lean all of you against all of it. That's what belief means. That it literally means to put your weight upon something, to transfer trust from self to Christ as your Savior. Uh, you know, you used to see the old illustration back in the day, and they do this some places still, and I think it's good. They'll bring a chair out and they'll say, when do I believe the chair will hold me? And the answer is, well, when I sit in it, right? When I transfer my trust to it, when I actually sit in it. Not when I say, well, that chair looks like it could hold somebody. When I really believe it is when I sit down in it. So it says he believed him, and then he counted it as righteousness, which they, they call this, in some places, they call this the riddle of the Old Testament. It's like, well, wait, wait a second. How can God, we already know Abraham's a failure and a fool and flawed, just like all of us. How, how can God count him as righteous? Righteous means perfect. Righteous means uh, perfect attitude, perfect actions. And now, it's important, the word counted. Counted means to look at something and say it so, even though everything else appears not to be. So he's going to look at Abraham and say, look, I know you're foolish, but because you believe in me, because you trust in me, because you believe that I'm going to send somebody to save the world. See, by the way, they had a faith that looked forward. We have a faith that looks back. They looked forward to a Messiah. We look back to a Messiah. And so he says, because you have that faith, because you're looking forward, I'm, gonna, I'm going to count it to you as righteousness, as if what Christ has done, it counts for you as if you did it. That's, that's what it means. And so, but then look what happens in verse seven. So he says that, and then in verse seven, and God said to him, he's again revealing more of himself, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. I'm, I'm the God who saves. I'm the God who changes. To give you this land to possess. But then here, and this is, this is I hope to be pastorally helpful to you. In verse eight, Abraham has more questions. So, so verse six is, I mean, verse six is such an important verse. James chapter two, Galatians chapter three, Romans chapter four are all about that verse. And it's like, it's like a stalwart verse on justification by faith alone. If you believe, that's how you're saved. But then two verses later, not two chapters later, two verses later, Abraham's asking questions and doubting again. This is what lets us know that doubt is an element of faith. It's an aspect of faith. 
It fits within. I have a deep belief, but I've got some questions. And, I want, and, and again, faith with doubt. What, I want to understand. I want to understand. Here's what he's saying. Verse 8, but he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, this is a very deep thing. Here's what he's saying. He's basically saying, Lord, I trust you, but I don't know if I can trust me. Right? Because there's always two elements to this. It's like, if all this is going to work out, he's basically like, all right, God, so you're faithful because, well, I've seen you be faithful and you, you got me out of Egypt when I, when I failed there and you, 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 know, I, I, you helped me win the, the kings there and you, know, and you helped me separate well from Lot. And so I, I know that you're a good God, but I'm like not great. Right? That's one of the things, if you're really honest with yourself, you're like, you, you, when you think about your life, you go, well, even if God's faithful, how do you know that you're not going to mess it all up? Because it's like, well, if you think about your own life and you're really honest, it's like, well, you've lied to you more than anyone else has. Right? Rational lies means to tell yourself rational lies, usually. Right? That's what So it's like, if, if other people treated you the way you treat yourself, you probably wouldn't be their friend. Right? You, you tell yourself to do things and you never do them. Right? And we, don't, we tend to think about ourselves in terms of like, well, if I would tell my, I can tell myself what to do and then I can do it. It's like, well, try that on January 1st this year because everyone tries that and it never works, right? We all like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to be informed in culture. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to work out. It'll be 7.30 in the morning when I'm done doing those things, you know, whatever. You know, it's like, no, it won't. You will do none of those most likely. None of us will do those things. Like the, it's something like 95% of people who set New Year's resolutions fail all of them by the Super Bowl. And it's like, that's kind of a, I know, it's kind of a, you still set your New Year's resolutions, that's fine, but I'm probably still going to do some this year. Try, yeah. But, but the, whole, the whole idea is that we, we tend to fail, and that's because it's not, it would be amazing if we could just tell ourselves to do things, and then we would do it, right? And he's looking ahead, and, and Abraham, this is why the Bible is so honest, it's helpful. Abraham's like, look, I'm afraid that I'm going to mess this all up. And that's, a, I mean, it's like, well, thank you, you know, you and I will mess this up if it's up to us. Right? Because it's like, yeah, you're great until you're hungry. Right? And then what happens? Or you're, you're great until you get lonely one night. Or there's you, and you're pretty normal here and everything, but then there's angry you at home. It's like, oh, goodness, angry you. You say things, and you do, and you come out from being angry you, and you're like, oh, sorry about that. You've got to apologize to a bunch of people. There's tired you. There's sexually charged you. It's like, oh, goodness, right? It's like, well, good luck with all of that. And then add suffering and illness and marriage and kids and career and another five decades, and the chance that you will screw this up is 100%. So it's like, well, this is, a, this is, this is by the way, why religion fails, because here's what religion says. Religion says, um, do all these things and God will love you. It's like, well, there's two things that happen there, and people have been talking about this for a long time. It's like, well, okay, I'll, I'll do all those things, except I won't, so then I'll be depressed, and I'll despair, and I'll have anxiety, because I don't even hold up to my own standards. I can't do this. And then on the other end, I will actually do those things, but then I'll be prideful and think I'm better than other people. And that's the two dangers of, trying to, of having a works righteousness. I either become depressed in despair or I become very prideful. And so I want you to see God's answer to this. This is amazing. And I'm going to have to kind of explain it to you because it's kind of archaic in how it comes, comes about. But what God's going to do is he's going to set up a covenant. I want you to see this. Look at verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old. And, and, and this is going to be the language of sacrifice. And I want you to understand that in the Bible, sacrifice, worship, and commitment are basically the exact same thing. So if you would say, I'm sacrificing for this and I'm completely committed to it, I would say you worship it. That's actually the definition in the Bible of worship. So we're seeing sacrifice here. He said, bring me a heifer, and, and again, I need to be specific, three years old, and then a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon, and he brought them all, the, he brought him all these and cut them in half. So, you, I mean, you think about this. This is the language of sacrifice. This is what's happening. What, what was happening here is he's literally taking these animals and they're alive, 
And then, not to be too graphic, but you just need to know this, he slits their throats, he kills them, he cuts them in half. And, and part of what this communicates, which we have no, I don't even, I can't think of the categories for this exactly, but, I, but like, it, what he's communicating is, I'm dead serious about this. Like, we're not serious about anything in our culture anymore. Uh, maybe, maybe one thing, I just thought of this right now, but like, I, I was at a wedding last night for this great couple, and, 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 and a good wedding that's historically rooted in the common book of prayer and those things, it's about the last serious thing on earth. If you, and everyone's like, everyone's dressed up and everybody's formal and there's so much symbolism, right? She's walking, the dad's walking down the aisle and everybody's standing and there's a welcome and there's covenants and there's vows and it's like, well, that's about the only place that happens anymore. It's like a drama unfolding that right? we're all watching and oh, why is she wearing white and there's all this symbolism going there and why does he stand down there to receive? It's all this symbolism. Well, that's actually what's happening in this. There's gonna be all this rich symbolism. So he says, cut them in half, put half of the dead animal on this side and half of the dead animal on that side. Verse 11, and the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Verse 12, and the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So this is interesting. So here's what's about to happen. This is what they would do. They would spread these dead animals, and then um, whenever they would make a covenantal commitment, they didn't live in a written culture. They didn't have pen and paper like we do, so it was all dramatic. So what they would do is they would dramatize and symbolize and visualize all of it. And so what they do is they've got these animals here and this animal here, and then uh, two people, two men, two women, or man and woman, they would make a commitment to each other. They would say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And then they would both walk through the pieces of, of the, these dead animals. You go, well, why did they do that? Because what they were saying, this is a very common practice, they were saying, if I don't keep up my end of the deal, may I become like this animal? It's like, I'm swearing, you know, we say things, sometimes everyone, once in a while someone will say something like, I swear to God. Right? They'll, they'll kind of ante it up, okay? We start doing this at a very young age. I pinky promise, okay, right? That's like, when you're like six, that's like, that's as like deep as it gets, right? Um, but the whole idea there is I want, to, I want to take a moment right now and explain to you how serious I am. Okay, so this is what they would do. And, and what they would normally do, this is why you understand how unique this is, is normally um, when a king, God would be the king in this situation, and a servant would do this, the king would not walk through it. It would be like the exception. He'd be like, well, and this is very cultural, like, I'm the king, so I'm going to keep it. I'm not going to kind of dishonor myself by walking through this. I'm going to keep it. But you, you walk through it. Well, you read this, and you go, well, why is Abraham sleeping? Because he's going to sleep through all of this. It's like it's a picture to go, that's how much you had to do with your salvation. You were sleeping. You, had, you were unconscious, completely knocked out, have no idea what's going on while God was saving you. Right? While we were enemies, God saved us. God saved us 2,000 years ago before any of us were born by the work of Christ on the cross. So let's continue this, because he walks them through. Here's what he says, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's saying, I've got promises, I'm making commitments, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Verse 15 and 16, he basically walks through what's going to happen to Abraham. And then look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Those were the visible representations of God. So in, in the book of Exodus, we see pillar by day, we see, or sorry, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Uh, this is kind of what's happening here. It's, it's a visible representation of God. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to you, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. 
So here's what makes this unique. Not only does God as the king walk through, but the servant does not walk through. He's sleeping and God walks through for both of us. This, this, is, this is about as central to the gospel message as you can get because here's what God's saying. I'm going to keep up both parts of it. I promise you by my life and my death that I'm going to do what I say. And if you don't keep, hear the image of the gospel here, if you don't keep your part, I'll die. So when Jesus Christ is crucified years later and you go, well, why is he die? That's what he's talking about. People go, well, why does he have to be what, you know, Christmas, right? Why is the virgin birth? Do we need the virgin birth? Do we need to talk about the virgin birth? Do we need to believe in miracles like the virgin birth? Well, only if you want to believe in the complete humanity and the complete divinity of Jesus Christ. Only if you want to believe that he had to fully represent God and fully represent us. If you don't want to believe that, then no. But if you lose the virgin birth, you actually lose the entire gospel. Because you lose that God had to actually do both, both sides of the agreement. So that's the end of chapter 15. And with our time left, we're going to spend some time on chapter 16. And what you see in chapter 16 is the opposite of waiting in faith. You see, instead of waiting in faith, you try, you're going to see these two women, and Abraham's going to be part of it too, Sarai and Hagar, and instead of waiting in faith, they're going to try to do God's will their way, which is a big, big, you know, basically they're going to, they're going to look up to God and they're going to basically, we'll see this in a second, they're going to basically say to God, uh, God, um, I still don't have any kids, and then they're basically, and we say this, God, I'm going to help you out. I know you're almighty, I know you're eternal, I know you're all-knowing, but I actually know how to do your will my way. And, and here's what we're going to see, and this is a big principle in Scripture. When you try to do God's will your way, you actually make it worse. And it's actually not, and it's not very hard to make things worse. Like, you can make things, tomorrow, very easily, without, with very little thought, you can make your work worse. Right? You know exactly, some of you are probably already doing that, right? You're like, I'm just going to not, you know, work as hard as I could, and I'm not going to be a good man. It's like, you're doing it already. Okay. It's very, very hard, very, very difficult to actually make things better. And what we're going to see here is they're going to think they're going to make things better. People do this all the time. They think they're making things better. They're actually making things worse. So let's look at this. This is chapter 16. And we'll kind of fly through this. Uh, it says this, now Sarai, Abram's wife, she's also, she'll be later called Sarah. We'll look at that next week. So I'm, I may go back and forth calling her this. Um, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So she was barren. And in that culture, to not have children, it's a big deal today. Hear me say that. It's a very big deal. But in that culture, there was no plan B for women. There was no, well, go live your single life and go get educated and go have a career and go, go. it was, nope, this is it. This is, this is what women did back then. And so she feels completely without purpose. The children were the retirement plan of that day. So it says this, now, Abram, Sarah, Sarah, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, this is interesting. Hagar is a servant that Abram picked up when he was down in Egypt. And we talked about this, right? There are things in our life that often we pick up when we're sinning, we pick up in our past life, and if we don't repent, if we don't get rid of them, if we don't release them, then they end up coming back and we end up really end up sinning with them pretty badly, right? Like so, some of you, it's like you still have his number or her number and it needs to be out of your phone, right? Like I don't ever text him. Yeah, you never text him until you text him, right? That's the rule with all of us. Like, you know, you, you have a habit, you have an app, you have a video, you have a website, you, you, you have a habit in your life that you go back to, and it's like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah, I'm just going to bring it with me. But I'm not going to, it's like, well, th we're going to see in this, this story that what is happening is you end up doing something about it. And so we, we see that this, she, she comes together, the two women, and here's what, here's what happens next. It says this, and Sarah said to Abraham, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So she's bitter toward the Lord. She's not, we don't see her ever talk to the Lord about this. 
We don't ever see her seek the Lord's face. We don't ever see her go to the Lord like Abraham did and say, can, can you help me understand this? Can, can, you, can, you give me, can you remind me of your word? Can you show me a promise? So here's what happens in verse B. She says, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So here's what she's trying to do. She's trying to, and I said this a little earlier, she's trying to do God's will her way. And let me, this is, this is a constant temptation for us. Let me tell you how it works in the church world. We want to take what God's will is, and God's will is, uh, let's see people come to faith in Christ, let's see them baptized, let's see them discipled, let's see them um, mature, let's see them sent out. That would all be the things that God clearly wants in his will, but then we want to do it our way. Well, if we want to have a lot of people here, we better water down the message. We better, we better not talk about hard things. We better not talk about repentance and faith, right? It's like, well, what happens when churches make those decisions? And I'm not saying that we're above ever doing that kind of stuff. Well, that could be a temptation for us. It's like, well, what happens when churches do that? It's like, well, it ends up, they don't even get what they want. They get a crowd, not a church. They, they get people who aren't really Christians, who don't really want to repent, who don't really want to grow, who aren't really spiritually mature. That's one temptation, right? That on a personal level, we can decide, and this is kind of sneaky, we can decide, I want God's will for my life, but I would like to do it my way. So yeah, I want my life, yeah, you're right. My life needs to be about discipleship and mission. That's God's will, clearly. But the way I'm gonna do it is be super selfish about it, if that's okay. Like I would not like it to cost me any of my free time because there's a lot of new streaming services that I would like to binge. And if I don't have time to binge all of those, and if I don't have at least five or six nights of my week completely off so I can do nothing except be selfish and self-focused, then I don't know, how, but I'm willing to do God's will, but it just has to fit into my way. Right? Or people say that, you know, I've seen this before where, and it's more women than men, but it can work both, both, work both ways, is a, a woman will often say, especially if she's getting older and the biological clock's running out, she'll, she'll say things like, well, you know, I know it's God's will that I would get married, but there's no Christian guys around, there's no godly men around, so then I'm, but, but God wants me to be happy, and God, you know, so, so I'm going to marry this non-Christian person. And then what ends up happening is it complicates the already complex. Right? Here's what people say all the time. People say this all the time. God wants me to be happy, so. It's like, well, are you sure that God wants you to be happy? I mean, really. I mean, that would be a, show me that case from Scripture. I mean, I understand the joy of the Lord. I understand some other things. But the God wants you to be happy. And therefore, you think that's God's will. That's another thing. We're confused about what God's will is. But you think that's God's will, so that gives you the ability to do whatever you want to do sexually. It's like, well, we're all sexual sinners. We all need to repent of our sexual sin. We, we don't have the freedom to do whatever we want to do. And so we begin to see this, and we begin to, begin to see it with these two women. Now, let me just say this. Here's what we believe about women. We believe men and women are equal in value, dignity, significance, worth. We believe men and women have all the same spiritual gifts, okay? We have a high view of women here, but we also believe, and we also believe, that women are just as sinful as men. And that's not talked about a lot today. It's like, it's like no, no, men are bad. Men are bad. It's like, well, women are bad too. Some of you are like, honey, can, we, am I, can he say that? You know? <laughs> Some of you are like uncomfortable sitting next to your wife while I say something like that. Um, but, but it's like, yes, women are just as bad as men. And we're actually going to see this in this story. Now, it's more, it's more subtle. It's more sophisticated. But we're going to actually see two women in this story act badly toward one another. Look at me. Here's what, here's what she says in verse 2. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of of his wife. Verse 3. So now Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So this is interesting. Here's what's happening. 
Sarai uses Hagar for her purposes. So you've got an older woman using a younger woman for her purposes. It's like the first, this is like the first episode ever of Mean Girls, okay? This is kind of what's going on here. It's like, well, why is that, by the way, why is that movie, you always ask this question, why is that movie so popular? It's like, well, because it's true. That's why that movie's popular. Because women can be very bad to each other. That's why that, that, that's why that, that's why that movie resonated. That's why we laughed at it. That's why it made such, so much money. It's because it was, there's a lot of truth to it. So in this situation, we have this woman, she's using another woman to get what she wants. And then that woman, this is interesting, a younger woman gets pregnant by an old rich guy. We think that's a new idea. Right? Like I saw that, I thought, I thought that only happened with rich people and celebrities and I, that only happened in the 21st century. No, that's a very, very old idea. Young girl get pregnant by old rich guy and then feel very good about herself. Hagar, for the first time in her life, she feels like, you know, she's had a rough life. But she starts to feel like, oh, well, now I, now I can have kids. Now, I, now I'm going to be connected to this rich guy. Now everything. So she starts to, we don't know all that she does, but it, 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 the way that she, you hear that? The way that she looks at her. One, one commentator said maybe she just for the first time ever started to make eye contact with her. Hagar starts to make eye contact with Sarah. Now look what happens next. So it goes on. Verse 5, and Sarah said to Abram, so this is what Sarah says, Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. So like, no, you can't play that card, right? <laughs> Abram's guilty too. We're going to pick on him. He's guilty too. But this, in this situation, here's what Sarah is doing. She did what she wanted to do. Now she's being manipulative and she's blaming her husband. I know this never happens, but it does in this story, okay? Um, and Sarah says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that you had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And then, look what Abraham does. But Abram said to Sarai, and this is, this is the classic passive guy. This is the classic guy who is afraid of his wife. Some of you are like nervous sitting next to your wife right now. What's he, what's he about to say? Okay. Um, but here's what happens. But Abram said to, his, said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So he doesn't, he doesn't t- want to talk to his wife about her sinful behavior. Because she'll cry. Because it'll be awkward. Because it'll be up till three in the morning. So everybody else has to deal with it. Because, because the husband won't, and the wife does, a whole other sermon on how the wife needs to do that to the husband too. But because the husband is afraid to have the hard conversation, to ask the difficult questions. Some of you husbands, there's things that you, you know you need to talk about to your wife about. You know it. You can't stand when she does certain things that you know are sinful, that are unhelpful. But you are so afraid of her that you don't bring them up. It's not helpful because look what happens. She ends up hurting other people. Look, look, look what happens in verse six. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. And she fled from her. Now, was Sarai physically hard? Did, did she physically beat up um, Hagar? Probably not, because women don't normally do that. Women do something that's called, and I read a lot about this this week, it's called in, indirect aggression. And it's a very powerful tool. It's, it, it, here's what I'll do. I'll gossip about you. I got a great idea. I will exclude you from the peer group. I've got a great idea. I will use innuendo and name calling to belittle you. And they, what they said, as I read a lot of studies about this this week, they said that indirect aggression, women to women, indirect aggression is incredibly powerful. Many, many, of, the, many, of, the, suicide, many of the suicide stories are, are, are connected back to some type of indirect aggression. Now, here's what they said, though. Indirect aggression does not work on men, because we don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> 
right? The wife's like, I've been giving you the cold shoulder for a week. You're like, really? <laughs> like, I've, I've been angry at you, and, and uh, did you not notice I didn't talk to us tonight? Uh-uh, you know? <laughs> it, it doesn't, you, with us, you just have to tell us. Like, you're an idiot. Yep, you're right, I am an idiot. Thank you, right? So it doesn't work, but on women, it's incredibly powerful. And, and what's interesting, and, and this, is, this is something to think about, because I've seen this. Now, I was in an organization at one point where we put... Um, we put two different women up for different opportunities that they had because they were incredibly gifted. And, and everybody loved what they did except for, guess who? A couple women. And a couple women who also wanted that position came up, and of course they said it very nicely. They said, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but... And then they were disrespectful, right? I mean, I don't mean to put her down, but if you didn't know, this is, it's like, oh, and we're in Christian circles with this. And what's interesting is, and I heard, I heard two or three different C-level, this was not Christian stuff, this was, this was, uh, I was reading some stuff this week, I saw two or three different C-level women leaders, this is CEOs and CFOs and COs, they said they think one of the greatest hindrances in the workplace for women is other women. It's women who say, she's too pretty, I don't want her on our staff. She, you know, she's smarter than me, or I like kind of being the only woman in this market industry or this area. And then often, and it's like, well, the church, hopefully, by God's grace, hopefully the church will be very different, right? The church will be a place where men are rooting for women, women are rooting for men, men for men, women for women. Because we can see what ends up happening. The women, they end up going against each other here. She, she ends up fleeing. And then here's verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, this is the, this is the John chapter 4, uh, woman at the well of the Old Testament. So I said earlier that women are equally sinful, Women are equally bad. Women need to equally repent. And here's the encouragement. Women are equally pursued by the Lord. Here's a woman sexually sinful, sexually broken, relationally estranged, and the Lord pursues her. And it's just like John chapter 4 because that was a broken woman, sexually and relationally, who was in the desert, in the wilderness, near a well, and the Lord appeared to her. And here's what the Lord says. Verse 8, And he said, Hagar, a servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. In other words, he comes to her, he asks her a couple questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, because she doesn't know the answer. And then he, he's trying to remind her, he's like, listen, I mean, this is basically what he's saying. You're a single, homeless, pregnant mom. It's going to be very, very, I mean, it's going to be, this isn't the 21st, that would be hard for a 21st century woman. It's like, this is going to be very difficult. You're going to have no one. You're going to have no one. And, and so what I'm actually doing is I'm actually caring for you, and I'm actually caring for your unborn son. And what I need you to do is return and submit, which, by the way, that's always a good rule for anybody. It's like, well, all right, you're, you know, and I hear all the time about rebellious teenagers. It's like, what does a rebellious teenager do, need to do? They need to return and submit to their parents. Well, what does a rebellious Christian need to do? They need to return and submit to the church. Say, I, you're right, I need to be under the word of God, I need to be around the people of God, I need to get in a community group, I need to get connected, I need to be in a DNA group, I need, I need people in my life to hold me accountable, I need to return, I need to be under authority like everybody else's. And then he says in verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and his name shall be Ishmael. And by the way, Ishmael, it literally means God hears, which would be a rebuke and reminder to them. It's like, well, I'm struggling with doubt. Let me call my son. God hears, right? It's like, well, every time I say my son's name, I'm going to be reminded that God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And then he says a few things about Ishmael. And then in verse 13, here's what happens. So she, Hagar, 
And this, by the way, is one of the only women in the Bible to call, to give God a name. In general, it's unique for people to give God a name. Normally, he reveals a name. But here, she names God. And she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. So here's the big idea. What do you do while you're waiting? And what do you do when you're doubting? And what do you do when you have questions? And what do you do when you're trying to make away yourself? You, you need to remember two things about God that are revealed in this passage. God sees and God hears. That's it. It's like, well, why are we struggling, right? Why do we struggle? It's like, well, does God see? Does God see what he did to me? Or does God see my difficult situation? Or does God see my illness? Or does God hear? Does God hear my prayer? Does God hear my cries? Does God, does God hear me? And that's a lot of what the Psalms are kind of wrestling with. I told you that earlier. And see, what we see in the Bible is that the, the, the story of the Bible, constantly God says, in, in the book of Exodus, here's what God says. Book of Exodus, Exodus chapter two, God says, I see, I hear, and I know. And I know what to do. And so the story of God throughout the Old Testament is God keeps his covenant for 2,000 more years. And 2,000 years from when Abraham first had that covenant where God made promises, a great darkness fell on the land again. You know, remember how it says when the covenant happened, there was a great darkness that fell over Abraham and fell over that area. There's one other time in the New Testament where it says a great darkness fell at the cross of Christ. It's like, well, when was the great sacrifice? It's like, well, it wasn't the, 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 you know, the ram and the heifer and all of that. It was actually God sacrificed himself. God, God said, if, I, if I'm going to keep my part, and he did. And he said, and you're not going to keep your part, so I'm going to have to die. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross was he died for your sins and for my sins so he can say this, I will be your shield. It's like, what does he mean, I will be your shield? I will protect you from the wrath of God to come. That's what, it's like, I will be a shield for what? It's like, you're going to die. You're definitely going to die. And terrible things are going to happen to you. And it's going to be tragic. And a lot of it's going to not be fair. What do you mean you're going to be a shield? I'm going to be a shield for your soul. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, the wrath of God, cannot, if you trust in me, will not touch you. You will not have to pay for your sins because instead Jesus Christ will pay for your sins. And all he says to us is, is will we do what Abraham did, which is embrace that? which is welcome that into our life, which is to say, I really, really believe in such a way that my whole life is going to be changed. And God says, if you do that, I'm going to look on you and I'm going to count that as righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer. Lord Jesus, we ask in your name, Lord, to be people of faith. We ask to be a church that waits. We didn't even talk about this, but as a church, we're waiting. We have questions, Lord, where you're leading us next. What's our next step as a church? Families in this, in this church, they have that question. Individuals have that question. Community groups have that question. And Lord, as we wait, let us turn to your word. As we wait, let us be honest with our questions and our doubts and our insecurities, Lord. But as we wait, let us be, we, be committed to your will and not trying to do things our way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.